This is episode 92 of the Landscape Photography Show brought to you by Near Zero Backpacks. And before we get into today's podcast, I want to thank patron to the podcast, Elise Bender. We've actually had Elise on the podcast before and got her thoughts and listened to her journey about photography. So be sure and go back and listen to Elise's podcast. That was a really good one on her journey through Japan and how that shaped how she sees photography in general. If you want to become a patron to the Landscape Photography Show and continue the support and continue the podcast, getting the best photographers on the planet week after week, feel free to go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for whichever tier and benefit package works best for you. Each tier is sectioned into specific benefits that you get for your contribution. Thank you so much for those who have signed up, and thank you so much for those who will. On today's podcast, we're talking with Taylor Stone, and what was really interesting about our discussion was that she was joining me from one of my favorite places, the Grand Teton National Park, in a teardrop trailer, a spot that we've all been before in our photographic journeys, and if you haven't been there before, not necessarily Grand Teton National Park, something like a teardrop trailer might be your accommodations for an entire week. So we were talking to Taylor Stone about her journey into photography, how she's balancing working on a PhD at the same time as getting her photography business off the ground and running. That was a really interesting discussion that we had. And we also talked about her passion for maintaining location, specifically Greenland and her connection to that country and the indigenous people of that country. We talked a lot about shock value in photography and how you elicit that from your photographs and maybe some things landscape photographers should think differently about when it comes to shock value in our photography. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome into the podcast, guys. We're here with Taylor Stone. Taylor's joining us from Grand Teton National Park. Nice mid-temperature days, cool nights. Taylor, how's it going? It's going great. It's uh, really nice to be back out here. It's one of my favorite places in the country, so I just can't get enough of those mountains. I love to start every single podcast um, just understanding people's backgrounds and getting everybody on the same page, subscribers, listeners, um, your fans. So why don't you get us started by telling us your background, what led you into photography and how you got your start and kind of what led you to where you are right now? Your, I mean, teardrop trailer in the Tetons. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's actually kind of a winding path. Um, I came to photography a little bit later. I was in my mid-20s when I really picked up a serious camera for the first time. But photography has always been this thing just lurking in the background, begging for me to take it seriously. So when I, I grew up in South Louisiana, and I promise I will try and abstain from throwing a y'all in there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I grew up in South Louisiana, so I was just really surrounded by nature all the time. It was a little unconventional. We lived in a cedar log cabin in the actual bayou. We couldn't have outdoor pets because, you know, 
alligators are a real thing down there. Mm-hmm. And so when you're surrounded by that, I mean, nature is just begging for you to pay attention to it. And from a really young age, I didn't spend a lot of time watching cartoons. I pretty much grew up watching the Discovery Channel and National Geographic. So when I'm four and other kids are saying they want to be astronauts when they grow up, I would tell every adult who would listen that I wanted to be a photographer. And (laughs) (laughs) it's funny how those things get lost, right? You have like these childhood dreams that people just, you know, most of those kids don't actually pursue being an astronaut right? And I didn't pursue being a photographer. It was just a childhood thing. Um, And then my life took a major shift in my mid-20s. And I said, you know, maybe there was something to that. It's time to revisit it. You took a winding career path, though, as well. You know, Mm -hmm. I was reading up um, before we jumped on and, you know, you go from federal agent to PhD researcher to photographer. Yeah. Why? And not why, but but how did that path originate? Oh man, uh, yeah, it's. I feel like I have lived multiple lifetimes already, um, just with all the strange and varied experiences. But when I got my undergrad, I went to Auburn University. Shout out for that. Um, but War Eagle, <laughs> War Eagle, yes. So um, I studied sociology and culture when I was there, and. I got put into a position where I started networking with a lot of people in the intelligence community. So like um, defense contracting companies, et cetera. Um, And through that networking, uh, I was actually recruited into an organization called OSI, which is a federal agency for the US Air Force. So when I started uh, as an OSI agent, It was all very exciting. I was very excited about working in the intelligence community. And I believed that I would be (laughs) working with intelligence with them, or at least that was, um, you know, what was conveyed to me. But ultimately, when I went through the Federal Law Enforcement Academy, the needs of the military took over and they had a manning shortage in the criminal field. And I got rerouted to work uh, with a major crimes uh, task force based out of Georgia for the duration of my stay in the Air Force. So you think you're going one way in life and then you get thrown that curveball. Um, it was a really interesting experience, a very uh, fascinating and high octane job where you're dealing with very exciting things every single day. Um, but maybe those campfire stories <laughs> are best not for radio. Um, you just, you experience a lot. And it wasn't necessarily my intention to end up in that type of law enforcement. Nothing really prepared me for that. Um, And when it came time that I could transition to a different career field, that was the transition that I opted for. Um, So when I got out of that career field, I just knew I didn't want to work in law enforcement, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I'm a huge dork, so I went back to academia, um, and I started my PhD program. Uh, My first question is, how did somebody from the bayou near Baton Rouge, Louisiana State University country, end up at Auburn University? (laughs) Oh, gosh. My dad will love this story. 
Um, <laughs> so when uh, I was a typical teenager, very rebellious, I didn't want to do mm. pretty much anything that my parents wanted me to do. And my entire family on both sides, back to great grandparents, had met their spouse at Auburn. Everyone went to Auburn. That's where they got married. It, it was a whole thing in my family. So, of course, I just was determined that I was not going to go to Auburn University because, well, I was just being me. Um, and so I thought I wanted to go to Georgia Tech. My dad took me on a road trip to go see colleges. And we went, we visited Georgia Tech. And I, there was just something about it. I just didn't have a connection with that university. I knew I didn't want to go there. And on the way back, we were arguing about what my future <laughs> was going to look like. And we literally have to drive right past Auburn University. And he said, you know what? I'm pulling over and you don't have to get out of the car, but we're going to go walk around or I, at least I am. And we're going to get a lemonade and we're going to have lunch. And you're going to just, if you want to pout in the car, that's what you can do. And we pulled off and I got my uh, sour attitude butt out of the car and I immediately decided I wanted to go there. So <laughs> sometimes dads went out. <laughs> a lemonade from Tumor's Corner? Yes, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. You have to when you're you there, right? To. It's a thing. That's funny. Yeah. Um, you know, following your career path, did nobody tell you that becoming a photographer, like you don't make very much money in that? <laughs> <laughs> Look, let me tell you, uh, <laughs> I definitely defied all forms of logic um, to become a photographer. It, it was a obstacle course going from, you know, a, a stable government job with amazing benefits. I mean, that's one of the biggest perks of being in a government job is you have a stable paycheck, great health insurance, awesome benefits in pretty much every realm imaginable. And to just say, you know, I'm willing to let go of that and take a chance that could totally fail. I mean, let, uh, some of my family members were calling to see if I was okay. We'll just say that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, photography is, is such a unique field. Looking back on your life experiences, uh, the career path that you've taken and kind of what's led you to photography now, and even you can you can contrast with what it meant to you when you said before you lost that when you were a little kid, what does photography mean to you now? It's the lens that I see the world through, you know, I, that might sound a little cliche, but it's just so true. You know, I've come to really see the world through the lens of my camera. Anytime I get excited about anything, you know, I know I'm a landscape photographer, but anything that I'm passionate about, the first instinct that I have is to grab the camera and see how I can convey that feeling through pictures. And it, it really has started to complement my life, not just with photography as a profession, but also in my research. You know, I mentioned that I, I'm a PhD student. I'm still grinding my way through that very long and arduous process. And I use a lot of photography to explore themes in academia. And then I use my academic knowledge to determine, you know, what would make for good or compelling photos. So they really work together. How do you balance those two out? <laughs> my boyfriend would say not very well. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's a struggle, honestly. It's like having two full time jobs. Um, if any listeners out there have known someone who's gone through a PhD program or still knows someone doing so, please give them a hug. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's a really long process. I'm close to four years in at this point. I probably have at least another three to go. Um, and it takes a huge amount of time and dedication. You cannot halfway want to do it. So, But photography is the same way. It, photography or any creative field is the type of job that if you do not give 100%, you will not make it. I mean, it's impossible. You can't be halfway committed to art, you know, or you're just not going to cut through the noise and actually rise above. So being 100% to two completely different things has been a real struggle. Um, there are days that I have definitely broken down with it. But you know, when I've been given the option to quit, I, I can't do it. I love what I do, both things. And I actually had a professor this past semester in the spring who told me that I may want to consider taking an incomplete in the class because I he felt like I was falling behind and there was nothing that was going to motivate me <laughs> more than him telling me to quit. I, I got an A in that class, so... <laughs> What do you think is the key motivator behind that of him basically telling you that he didn't think you could do this? I mean, what what about that kind of kicks you in the back and gets you jump started? I'm just one of those people. There's nothing I hate more than this world than hearing that I can't do something. I, I'm definitely the, the show me uh, or I'll show you type of person. Um, I just, it really drives me to take a look at what I'm doing, correct anything that I need to correct and just charge ahead. In terms of your creativity, you said you use photography, not only for your photography business, but also your research. We talked about balancing life with the two. How do you balance your creative expression with the two? Hmm. Well, okay. So for my PhD research, and this is going to be very nerdy. I hope I don't lose too many people with this. The nerdier, the better. In my opinion. <laughs> okay. I'm a huge dork. Um, so my whole PhD is based around the study of climate change impacts on Greenland's indigenous people. So when I am in Greenland, it's not just for photography. I'm exploring these academic themes and I'm looking at the world around me, both from an artistic point of view, but also as an academic and trying to determine, okay, well, what are these changes that are taking place and how can I document it? And when I go to document, it's not just by collecting data or writing a research paper. I'm also documenting with my camera, you know, so if I see that the people are being affected in a particular way. I'm going to try and document that in every way possible. And often that, that includes visual art. How do you do that though? How do you tell your story of the impacts happening? That's a great question. So for me, art, or at least my style of art, I really look for moments of transition both with landscape photography, but also with my research. 
I'm very interested in what are these moments of transition and how are they created? Where do they come from and where do they go? So in, in Greenland, for example, the people who are living, especially in very rural areas, are going through a huge period of transition. You know, Greenland is becoming a very modern uh, society, so you have traditional values being changed. And, you know, I, I love photographing the Greenland dogs, especially right next to the snowmobiles that are quickly starting to replace them. Or, you know, you have the modern houses in Denmark and you still see those positioned next to a lot of traditional tools. And I find that dynamic or that interplay of the transition taking place to be really fascinating. In terms of like mass tourism, uh, I know Iceland has seen a lot. I'm seeing a lot more people start to go to Greenland. Um, national parks have a huge influx of visitors, especially I feel like after uh, pandemic regulations are starting to diminish. What are the major challenges that, let's just use the example of indigenous people of Greenland, what are the main challenges that they're facing because of that? That's actually a great question. I wrote a paper um, about a year and a half ago about mass tourism in Greenland and how it's affecting the local communities there. So my advice for people who are interested in going to Greenland is first off, go. It's amazing. It's beautiful. You should absolutely see it with your own eyes. Um, but don't go on a cruise ship. Um, these are owned by large multinational corporations. All of the money that you are paying for that trip is going out of that country. So because they're owned generally by a third a multinational corporation based outside of Greenland, then all the dollars that you're spending on your room and your transportation and everything flows directly out of that country. They don't employ local people in general. Um, and oftentimes they, even the guides and the excursions that you book on the boats are through Danish, uh, companies that are based in Greenland. They're not even going to the indigenous people there. You know, your hotel room is on a boat, so you're not contributing to the local economy. Almost all of your meals are on the boat. Again, you're not contributing to the local economy and you're buying your souvenirs generally on the boat. So I would just say, please support the local indigenous people. You know, it's a lot more logistically complicated to go to Greenland than many other places, but just put in the time and the effort, do the work, find a local family or an Airbnb or a locally owned hotel and actually make sure that the money that you're spending is going to that community. How responsible are photographers with mass tourism? Um, workshops are obviously the leading cause uh, or the leading profit maker for photographers. So is there an impact that we're causing? And this is just me thinking right off your answer to that question. Right. I, that's something I think about because I also have a workshop in Greenland, a subtle plug there. Um, and it's our responsibility if you're running workshops in the photography community to make sure where that money is going. So it is my responsibility that my boat captain that I'm chartering 
uh, is based in that local community that I'm not using some, you know, super national corporation or you have a lot of Danish investors in Greenland. Um, and I would just want to make sure that my money is going to someone who actually lives there. So it's just doing your due diligence. Don't do the easy thing and just book the first thing available because there's a good chance that money is not actually going to support that community. Um, same goes for if you take your clients to dinner, you know, you're not going to take them, try not to take them to a chain restaurant, take them to a mom and pop place, look for the places that you can have the biggest impact in that community and make sure that you're really funneling those resources to those areas. In terms of, you know, we can see an increase of, of climate change in terms of speed and its effect on, on what it's doing on the geography and the geology of the earth in terms of mass tourism, where you start to eliminate culture, when are we going to start to see a loss of place or a loss of culture? Well, I, you know, it's difficult because societies, cultures, they're always evolving every single day, even our own culture here in the U.S. where I live, you know, we're constantly evolving as a culture. And the same goes for indigenous communities, right? It's not appropriate for me to say, well, gosh, I really hate that they use cell phones because it's ruining their, you know, that's not fair because you want cultures to be able to evolve and to continue to better themselves through whatever means are necessary. So the culture is going to change. And I don't know that there's a way for us to stop that. The most important thing that we could do is probably make sure that we're valuing the culture that does exist um, and, you know, appreciating it from an artistic perspective, also just as humans on this planet, that we maintain a space for indigenous cultures that we're tolerant of them and that we create a space for those things to exist. Why did you choose climate change specifically? Getting me with good questions here, David. Um, you know, I don't know that it's a straightforward answer. I think when I first started research, I was mostly, I was focusing a lot on political issues in the Arctic. I was really focused on geopolitics. Um, the Arctic has always been this region that really intrigues me because it feels so far away and so remote. It's very exotic. Um, and so I was very interested in geopolitical issues between the U.S. and Russia and other Arctic actors. And that all kind of pivoted when I took my first trip to Greenland. And when I first stood there with my own feet, you know, and looked at everything with my own eyes, I just knew that whatever efforts I wanted to make, it was going to be to preserve that space, not for political actors gain, but for, you know, the protection of this area that I just absolutely was overwhelmed with. I completely fell in love with the Arctic. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick and talk about today's sponsor for the podcast, and that's Near Zero Backpacks. You know, I've been talking the last few weeks about some of the features that Near Zero Backpacks have, and you might be thinking to yourself, okay, these mid-roll ads, you're just reading off of a script, right? Well, today I want to share a few different things from my personal experience of trying this backpack out. Number one, 
it's expandable. I cannot stand in previous backpacks that they are just a set size. I love the rolling top of this backpack and the fact that it rolls means that no water is getting in. You know, that's one of my biggest fears, water getting into the top of my backpack, but I also want to expand the pack to get an extra jacket in there or put my sleeping pad in there for when I'm camping or anything like that. Probably extra snacks on the trail if I'm being realistic with you guys. So expandable, it's lightweight. Having a bag that is so lightweight doesn't seem like a lot when you're thinking about it or looking at an ounce spec side by side to a different bag, but it truly is a saving grace for your shoulders. It's also rugged. Having this pack and rubbing it up on rocks and crawling through caverns and different things like that, I never had to worry when I was scratching this bag on different surfaces, knowing that my camera gear was gonna be protected. And that brings me to my last point, protecting your camera gear. When I first got this camera bag out of the box, I'm gonna be honest with you guys, I felt it and I was like, this ain't it. Like this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna do it. But the more I used it, the more I was surprised at how protected my camera gear was inside. And pairing that with such a lightweight and also rub resistant fabric, it was a win-win-win for me. I really enjoyed this bag. If you wanna find out more about these camera bags, you can go to nearzerolabs.com. And if you order one, be sure to tell them that David Johnston from the Landscape Photography Show sent you. Again, that's nearzerolabs.com. Let's get back to the show. You know, I'm really glad that our discussion is going this direction. Um, and it's because, you know, we, we both met each other at the Outsiders Conference mm -hmm. in Kanab. Um, while we were there, Eric Bennett and I were briefly discussing the Art Wolf presentation, the keynote that he gave, and specifically discussing some of the photographs that caused a reaction or shock value as we called it. Mm -hmm. um, Eric and I discussed sharing images that raised anger and different types of emotion, anger, sadness, uh, or shock of, you know, he would show um, animals eating other animals. And typically landscape photographers are exclusively showing images of just beautiful scenes with mm -hmm. no misrepresentation in them whatsoever. What's the value there uh, of sharing something that creates shock in a composition? You know, I also, I'm very guilty of also mostly just focusing on pretty pictures of pretty oh, places. Same. Yeah, I mean, I'm so guilty of that. We all, as photographers, I think, fall into this social media trap of what people want to see. And, you know, I'm also just guilty of kind of uh, falling down on the job here of making people aware of the real world and what's really out there, you know. I have um, some pictures from Greenland in particular, you know, and these huts and some of these rural communities that people live in, it's, it's a very different world, first off, uh, than what we're used to. You know, it, it looks kind of just on the surface, 
run down or, you know, there's areas where there's lots of trash everywhere. And, you know, it can be kind of depressing. Like these are not pictures that would, let's say, thrive with Instagram's algorithm. Um, but they're incredibly important pictures. They tell a story, you know, that there's trash because trash is a huge problem in Greenland. I mean, what do you do in a place where garbage doesn't break down, right? When there's no decomposition, what happens to these landfills? Or when there's nowhere to take the trash because who's going to export it? You know, these are all really important stories that need to be told, you know, and thanks for asking the question because you're actually making me feel more passionate about sharing these images. So I'm going to get on that. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way, though, to balance out beauty and shock Definitely. in the same image? Definitely. How so? Yeah. So actually, I want to I want to point to an artist who is not a photographer. Uh, her name is Zaria Foreman. Um, or I think on Instagram, it's Zaria Lynn. Um, and she is a chalk artist. She specializes in creating beautiful images of ice in the Arctic. And I love hearing her speak because she answers your question precisely, which is these beautiful images connect you to a place and it creates value in your mind. Why would you protect a place, you know, and this special connection that can be formed through really beautiful images, it creates that sense of value and it reminds you of how much there is to actually lose if you don't protect them. Do you fear some of the places that you go to are at risk of being lost? Oh, absolutely. It's funny. In 2019, I spent the summer in Greenland, um, like it was about seven weeks in Greenland. And first off, it was this whole, <laughs> this whole crazy thing I was trying to do. I was really trying to hike to the polar ice cap. It didn't work out. There's the, you know, short ending of that one. Um, <laughs> I had a lot of things go wrong on that trip. But Okay, we're going to get to the long <laughs> story of that in just a second. Yeah, it's a long and winding one. But um, when I was there, so 2019 was widely recognized as the warmest season on record in Greenland. And it was just shocking to be there for that. I mean, it just shocking. And it's hard to convey the way it feels to be in a world of ice that is just crumbling around you unless you are there. I just, I never know the words to use to explain this. And in Greenland during the summer, the average high is in the fifties. There was like a week straight that it was over 80. Um, and I mean, I was just sweltering. Uh, the people in Greenland were looking at me like a crazy person because I was wearing flip flops, and I'm pretty sure <laughs> they, they haven't seen those. Um, and so, because I'm walking around in, in sandals, it was so hot that the ground that I was camping on, which I have stayed on before and is permafrost through the summer, it literally melted beneath my tent into a bog. You know, I'd never seen this before. Um, and judging from the responses of other people, they hadn't either. It was just, it was really shocking. Do you feel that, and this is no outside perspective on your own photography, this is just your feeling about the images that you create. Do you add extra value emotionally to the compositions you create because you are so passionate about the deeper part of, of why you're there and why you're photographing? 
I mean, definitely. It's the same uh, reason that many of us as photographers, our favorite pictures may not be the ones that sell or perform really well uh, online. You know, it's because we have these emotional connections that are really strong to these images. It's, it's the, definitely the same for me. Um, I have certain images from Greenland that remind me of these poignant moments that I went through. And I hope that my art can convey that, but I know that no picture can fully convey like the gravity or, you know, the overwhelming feeling of those moments. It's an imperfect way of conveying something, but it's the best we can do. <laughs> Why do you think people are so uncomfortable with shock value? Well, no one likes to be made to feel uncomfortable. We get really, we're very comfortable in our view of the world around us. We see the world through these rose-tinted glasses, you know, of whatever world we have built for ourselves. And when that gets challenged, it can really shake the foundation of what you understand your world to be, or even your view of yourself or other people around you. We don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable and we don't want to be made to question things. Um, it's actually one of the reasons I have a photo series that I haven't even posted online. I don't really know what to do with it. It's called Asylum. Um, and it was taken in an abandoned mental institution. It's just this abandoned building um, with all the rooms and all the cell doors and it's just this it makes you very uncomfortable to know that this was a placement to protect people who are most in need and you know that's a very uncomfortable thing to look at this and reflect on what we do to each other and that translates into the world it's uncomfortable to look at what we do in the world do you think your background in some of the things you've experienced as a federal agent make you more comfortable in the uncomfortable? <laughs> you know, I've never thought about it that way, but Lord, if anything's going to make you more uncomfortable with uncomfortable things, it would definitely be that job. Uh, every single day you're confronted with the worst that humanity would possibly have to offer or things that you never thought that any human would have to deal with. Um, and it creates, I guess, you create this way inside of you to deal with those situations um, and hopefully help people through it. Um, although I'm not entirely convinced that that was always what I was doing. Well, what about photographically? Um, we're constantly being placed in uncomfortable positions, whether that's sliding through the the smallest slot canyon you can imagine <laughs> or being in extreme temperatures do you think that being used to being uncomfortable values itself to being a more creative photographer well it definitely makes you bolder um you know i constantly get asked aren't you afraid out there by yourself? Um, especially, I guess, as a female, there's this perception that I'm somehow at risk in the outdoors or in danger all the time. Um, and just having had that law enforcement background, I can say that I very rarely feel unsafe. Um, I, it has definitely made me bolder. You know, I spent quite a few years just traveling by myself, which means I'm hiking by myself. I am always camping alone, car camping. And, you know, I'm still an adult who's scared of the dark. So night hiking by myself was always awful. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I'm guilty of that one. I've had a few rabbits make me scream, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it definitely has made me feel bolder about going into these uncomfortable situations and just having this self-assurance and certainty that I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to mention any names, but I, I, I do know of a photographer who was stopped in their tracks uh, in a night hike because they saw a figure in the distance. And when they were bold enough to approach it, it was a Smokey the Bear cutout oh telling God. you to prevent forest fires. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. But see, that would be me. That would be me. I, I would totally be that person. <laughs> All right, let's go back to your long story about solo hiking to the ice cap in the center of Greenland. I think you said on your website you started on the West Coast. First of all, why choose solo hiking? Well, because at that point, I mean, I was doing everything alone anyway. I mean, you know, I my, and I would not advise this for any listeners thinking about really venturing into photography. Uh, I was very much a lone wolf. When I was starting out, you know, I just kind of went at it by myself. I didn't have a lot of mentors. I didn't seek out those opportunities, which was an absolute shame and a total mistake on my part. So when I was going to go do it alone, I mean, well, it's because I didn't have anybody else. I was used to doing everything alone at that point. And what were the challenges that you faced? Um, well, it, it was about... You know, it's hard to know looking at a satellite map, but I was estimating close to 60 miles round trip over, there's no trails um, at all. So you are land navigating with a compass and a map that is not helpful almost at all because, you know, there's just not a lot of great topo maps of Greenland. <laughs> um, and, you know, you have to carry all your food. I mean, it was just logistically challenging. I spent a lot of time preparing for this trip and weighing my pack before I went um, and planning my routes to the best of my ability. I even reached out to the Danish military to try and get better satellite maps. I didn't get them, but I tried. Um, <laughs> so it, it was it was an undertaking. Where are those images that you took now? Uh, they live on my hard drive. <laughs> Never to see the light of day. Yeah, well, you know, it's actually funny. I didn't do that hike to take photos. I did that hike because I wanted to have a personal experience in what Greenland was really about. I wanted mm. to be uncomfortable. Um, mm. I brought a camera with me. I didn't take a ton of pictures, um, mostly because when you're hiking that much uh, at a certain point, you just don't want to get your camera out of your pack again mm -hmm. um, or slow down your momentum because I was averaging maybe not even eight miles a day maybe at best I mean the terrain was challenging to say the least and you know I wanted to be uncomfortable I wanted to see the real Greenland I wanted to challenge myself um, and I wanted to feel like I earned the right to be in this amazing place you know and sometimes to earn that right at least in my mind it takes the blood sweat and tears you know you have to go out and grind it and earn it I want to go back and circle to, I mentioned the Outsiders Conference, um, just being there for the time that you were there, what inspiration did you take away from a gathering of photography enthusiasts? 
So what I will say is that was my first photography conference I had ever attended, which is a shame um, for anyone listening who is curious about attending one. You should definitely do it because it's just amazing to be in a room with so many people that I had personally looked up to. You know, these are names that I've seen through the, you know, the internet. We've maybe messaged once or twice, but then to actually meet in person and connect you know, it, it made people who I idolize into real people, which is always a helpful thing. And it creates networking connections that you can have, you know, because the photography community is a welcoming community. You know, I want any opportunity to build someone else up. When we when one person wins, we all win. So having a group of people together that can lift each other up, I mean, that was invaluable. Did it make you more creative? I love seeing pictures from other people. So I think in terms of making me more creative, definitely. It's because I can see a photo from a particular location that I may have shot before, but it's from a different angle. And it challenges me to think, wow, you know, I never thought to approach this subject in that way. Or I never thought to see the light from this perspective. It just is so nice to get inside of the minds of other creative people and see how they perceive the world. And that's what a conference can do and what really looking at other people's art can do is it provides you a different perspective, even if it's only for that moment that can challenge your own views and get you to maybe try something different. What did you learn from that experience not just like meeting people or being around other creatives getting different viewpoints on the landscape or on photography in general but let's take just just for your driving force behind your photography and your creative vision what did the community of photographers kind of pour into you i definitely felt in that room that human connection that you just can't get online, you know, and having that ability to connect in person with other people, um, that was amazing because I felt supported in a way that I have not necessarily felt supported all the time in photography before. So it definitely made me feel for the, really the first time like super welcomed into this community. And that was awesome. That did a lot of good for my soul. As someone who described themselves as, as kind of a lone wolf and, and has been throughout this process, it that had to have been more encouraging for you, not only to feel that support, but my question is, is why do you think with so many photographers who do the exact same thing, lone wolves, introverts, love hiking alone, however you want to describe us, but when we come together, just be it for a couple days, probably because that's all, you know, social interaction that we can take because we're (laughs) strange creatures. Um, Why are we so accepting? You know, so I guess I can answer this in two parts. The, The first thing is why do we tend to go on our own? I can say for me personally, I didn't know any other photographers when I started. You know, I knew nobody else in this career field. I had no 
um, like direct person in my life that I could look up to. I didn't know anyone else who had ever tried. So if you don't have any type of like real tangible role model in your life, you're kind of stuck with going alone because let's face it, it can be really scary to reach out to some of these big names, you know, or say, Hey, you know, I look up to you. Could you mentor me? I mean, God, I couldn't even fathom doing that. That would have terrified me. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that we, a lot of us start out by ourselves is because it can be intimidating from the outside looking in, especially if you don't have a direct touchstone into the community of photographers. But then I have found that once you nudge your way in, it can be really welcoming. And the reason is maybe that shared experience of us all kind of wandering through this. How do we do this? How do we make this a business? How do we go from being absolutely poor to like maybe turning a profit? How do you find clients? How do you work with brands? I mean, every single one of us has asked these questions and gone through that struggle. So it can be really comforting, I guess, to know that you didn't, even though you may have tried to do it alone, you never actually were. Everyone went through the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think the catalyst for engagement with one another is that we have no idea what we're doing, right? <laughs> Got like, <it>. Not a clue. <laughs> yeah. you're. I mean, if you ask somebody, like, what is your business model or, or how are you planning to make money this year? It's kind of just like, well, I think I'll throw a few darts at the wall and try these few things and see if they stick. And if not, go back to the drawing board. You know, I, I think that especially going through COVID, working in a travel-based industry, like, wow. I mean, that really shook my vision of my, a business model, right? Like, you think you have a plan, but I mean, God, do you might think you have a plan, but do we ever really, like, do you have a bomb-proof plan? It's really caused me to reevaluate some things, especially for myself. I mean... We've survived it. Well, she's Taylor Stone. Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time out of uh, an amazing location like the Tetons and talking to us. Yeah, thank you, David. Happy to be here. So the podcast is, is done here, right? Well, it's still going over on Patreon. On Patreon, if you're a patron to the podcast... You help the podcast continue to go week after week with some of the best photographers on the planet so you can be inspired, so you can get new ideas. And we've been really diving into some deep stuff in the exclusive content for the patrons. If you want to become a patron to the podcast and get access to exclusive audio like from today's podcast with Taylor, you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for a tier that fits your budget. Every tier is going to give you access to this audio, but each tier also gives you extra benefits on top of that, depending on which one you choose. So in the Patreon exclusive audio, Taylor and I talk about self-expression and standing out with your own personal style. We talk about where her photography is going in the coming years. And we also talk about the unique characteristics that landscape photographers have. You know, everybody sees the grand landscape so much. 
Taylor and I talk about how photographers most of the time see the little minute details that make up a place and get focused on a one inch by one inch square that fascinates us on the ground. And she also name drops some of the photographers that have inspired her along the way. Again, to get access to audio like this, you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for a tier that fits your budget. Thanks so much, guys. See you next week.